Good to see everybody here today. Glad that you're here. Some of you may be wondering, some of you actually asked uh, where Sarah and Lane are. Lane has, I won't call it the crud, but he's got uh, runny nose, watery eyes, and uh, I think he's got a sore throat. So it was kind of a game time decision. Sarah decided to keep him home today. And so uh, please pray, pray for Lane. And uh, today is Sarah's birthday, and so it's a special day for her. So, uh, but. Uh, I want to pre- prepare you for uh, something that we have coming up in the next couple of weeks. Next week we have Keith Parker coming. But in a couple of weeks, I'm going to uh, start a sermon series on the end times, the rapture, revelation, all of that stuff. Uh, there have been some questions about that. Uh, and so we're going to do a series on that. I'm not sure exactly what I'm going to do first or how long it's going to be, but it's a very interesting topic for, a, very, uh, for a, a lot of people. And I thought you may want to be interested in that. You can prepare for that in, in the upcoming weeks. Uh, today, though, we're going to do something different, something that I have not done since I've been here. I've done it before, but I have not done it since I've been here. Uh, but I want to, um, uh, to kind of to get our minds thinking. I want you to think about how things change over time. And I think about things changing over time. I think about myself now as a 38-year-old versus when I was a kid. Uh, Probably video games and the change that has happened in video games is the first thing that comes up to my mind. Uh, I was around when Atari first came out. And my family and I, we used to play Atari games together. We used to play a game called Asteroids. And we would have family tournaments in Asteroids. And then Nintendo came out. And man, was Nintendo the business. I mean, it was like the greatest thing that we had ever seen in video games. The graphics were great. The games were great. You could actually hold a, jo- hold a, a controller in your hand and have different buttons. You didn't have to worry about the little stick shift thing. It was wonderful. And then I looked today at the video games, and I thought Nintendo was awesome. And it's still awesome to me because it takes me back. But the graphics and the games they have today are so much different. And we laugh about that, we think that's funny, but it just shows us the the changes that take place over time. And so I want you to think, how did you spend time whenever you traveled as a kid? Nowadays, we spend time by watching a video on our phone or an iPad or playing a little handheld video game. But when I was a kid, we didn't have that. When I was a kid, we had a game called I Spy. And a person would think of an object And we would look around and we would have to come up with all these different clues and the other person had to try to guess or the other people had to try to guess whatever object it was that we were thinking about. And that's how we passed the time on family vacations a lot. Well, today we're going to kind of do something similar. I'm going to give you four clues about the person that we're talking about today. And I want you to think about the different characters of Scripture And we are talking about the New Testament, and I'll even narrow it down to four books for you. We're talking about a person in the Gospels. But I'm going to give you four clues, and I want you to think about who this person may be. And at the end of the lesson, I'm going to reveal it to you. And it may be somebody different than what you initially thought. But who am I? Well, let's look at clue number one. I turned it on and then turned it off. Sorry. There we go. First of all, I am blessed beyond measure. We're blessed beyond measure, aren't we? 
There's not a whole lot that we can say that we have that is not a blessing. Uh, whether we're rich or poor, have a lot or have a little, I think we can all say that we are blessed because the tiniest little blessing is still a blessing, right? And so we are all blessed beyond measure. And when we think about blessing in Scripture, there are a couple of things that we may think about. I had Luke chapter 6 read for us just a minute ago, and I want us to focus on what's said in verse 22. In Luke chapter 6 and verse 22, Jesus said, Blessed are those who revile you and persecute you, utter all kinds of, thing, utter all kinds of things against you on account of the Son of Man. How can that be a blessing? Well, the idea of blessing in that passage basically means happy. A person is happy not because of the condition that they are in, but because of the future that they have. As God's people, we are able to be blessed even though we are persecuted for righteousness' sake because in the end there's something greater to be had. There's something greater for us to look forward to. Blessed are those who are merciful. We may read in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Why am I blessed? Why am I happy? Because I'm hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Well, it's because of the result. Because I'm going to be filled based on what I'm actively pursuing in my life. If I'm actively pursuing things that pertain to God, things that pertain to, God, to, to Jesus and to my salvation then I'm ultimately going to be happy in all circumstances because I know that my priorities are in the right place and I'm recognizing the blessing in my life. But there's also another aspect of blessing that we think about. It's, all, uh, it's being, having favor bestowed upon us. This is what Paul gets into in Galatians chapter 3. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 7 through 9, he says this, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. Blessing here is having favor bestowed upon us as a result of our faith. Why was Abraham so blessed? Abraham was a rich guy, we read about in Scripture. Him and his, Lot both were rich people, a lot of rich people in the Old Testament. But why were they so rich? Well, they were rich because they were blessed by God. And Abraham is one of those individuals that was allowed to really see the result of his blessing because of his faith. And so, who am I? Well, first of all, I am blessed beyond measure. It's the first clue that I want you to think about. Here's another aspect of myself that I want you to guess. I am value, or I value mercy. We value mercy, don't we? There used to be a game when I was a kid that we used to play called mercy. And basically, you would lock your fingers together, your knuckles together, and the other person had to twist, and you tried to twist to the, other, uh, to the point where it hurt so much that the other person would cry out, Mercy, I hated that game because I always lost. But I tell you what, that game made me thankful for mercy because every time somebody made me play the game and somebody had to make me play the game, I would never volunteer. 
I would try to get myself out of it every time, but sometimes it just was not possible. But every single time I played, I was the one saying mercy, and I appreciated mercy more and more every single time I played the game. We value mercy because it is valuable. But it's valuable for the people of Israel in a little bit different way or for a little bit different reason than the one that we just mentioned. In the Old Testament, we first read about this in Exodus 25, but I want us to, to turn to Leviticus uh, 16. We read about a thing called a mercy seat under the Old Testament law. One of the several different types of furniture that we found in the tabernacle and later on will be found in the temple as well. But in Leviticus chapter 16, verses 14 and 15, this is what we read about that mercy seat. And he, that he there is Aaron, the high priest, he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat and on the east side and in front of the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Okay, so we've got this mercy seat, we've got this bull, we've got Aaron, and we've got this blood. What's the relationship with all of these things? Why is this blood being sprinkled on the mercy seat? I think that we can understand the significance of blood. Because the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 9, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so everything surrounding this passage is the forgiveness of the sins of the people and that is being offered through the blood of this bull. But what's the mercy seat got to do with it? You're sprinkling this blood and it's going on the mercy seat specifically. Well, the mercy seat was in the most holy place. And the mercy seat sat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. But more importantly, who sat on the mercy seat? It was God. And this blood being sprinkled on this mercy seat by the high priest was a symbol of God showing mercy upon the people in their sin. And so when the people of Israel thought about mercy, their minds would be connected to this mercy seat. Their minds would be connected to a physical object that they could see taking shape as it was being built. That they could see what was... Even though all of the Israelites were not able to go into the most holy place, only one person was able to do so twice a year, they still had this physical image in their mind of an actual mercy seat where they could receive that forgiveness of sins by God. But we don't have that, do we? We don't worship in a physical tabernacle. We don't go into a physical place to offer physical sacrifices and to sprinkle physical blood on some kind of physical object that results in our forgiveness of sin. And so what does this have to do with us? Can we have any kind of relationship with this type of mercy? I believe that we can. Because in Hebrews chapter 9, I alluded to this chapter earlier, 
But in Hebrews chapter 9, the Hebrews writer is reminding the people here, obviously a Jewish audience, or at least partly a Jewish audience. He's reminding them of the Old, Te- Old Testament worship system in the tabernacle. And in verse 3 says, Behind the second curtain was a second section called the Most Holy Place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat of these things we cannot now speak in detail. And so the Hebrews writer calls attention to this mercy seat. But you may be wondering, well Mitchell, this is still talking about the tabernacle. This is still talking about the most holy place. This is still talking about the physical mercy seat. And so what significance does this have? In 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10, the Bible uses the term to describe what Jesus did for us by means of God's love that He was offered as a propitiation for our sins. The word propitiation and the word mercy seat in Hebrews chapter 9 are very similar. They're basically the same word. So do we have a mercy seat? You better believe we have a mercy seat. Do we have a physical place that we can go to in our minds to remind us of the mercy that we have been received? Or that we have received? Yes, we do. It's called the cross of Jesus Christ. He died for us so that we may receive mercy. Who am I? Well, I'll tell you this. I'm a person that values mercy. I'm also a person that values preaching. And I will say literally, Mitchell Rogers values preaching. I love it. And when I first started preaching, it was hard for me to focus outwardly and not focus inwardly. It was hard for me not to look at myself and think, man, I love this so much. And my history, my past was not as great as I would have liked for it to be. And so I had a story to tell. And I believe that God gave me a gift. And if I don't use this gift, then I'm somehow wasting a talent that God has given me. Whenever I thought about preaching, when I first started doing it, I thought about myself and then I realized after a short period of time actually that I'm focusing on the wrong thing. Preaching is not about the preacher. Preaching is about the audience. It's about the people. That's what preaching is about. And while the preacher may value preaching, and and he needs to, the audience is the one that really needs to see the value of it. The audience is the one to be educated. The audience is the one to be uh, instilled growth upon. The audience is the one who needs to be changed. Not that all that doesn't pertain to the preacher, but the activity of preaching... It's not about the man, it's about the audience. I value preaching and this man valued preaching too. Jesus valued preaching. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus created this great following of people by performing all kinds of miracles. But later on that night, he went to sleep and he got up early in the morning before everybody else did and he went out to pray as he did so often. And the disciples are obviously looking for him and they finally find him and they say, Look, Jesus, come. Everybody is looking for you. And we would expect Jesus to be excited about that, right? Well, let's go. Let's tell these people more about who I am and more about the gospel and what they need to do to be saved. 
But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus looks at the people, looks at his apostles, and he says, let's go from this place. Let's go to the next towns so that I may preach there. For that is why I came out. What? Here's a group of people that want to hear you now. They want to see you now. Why are you going to the next towns? Because Jesus wasn't concerned about popularity. It was probably that Jesus already knew these people only want to see miracles. They just want to see the next great thing that Jesus will do. But Jesus said, these people have seen the miracles. They've heard the preaching. They've been taught about who I am. But there are so many others that haven't. And how am I going to communicate that message to them? The only way is if I leave from here, go to the next towns, and preach to those people. Jesus valued preaching over popularity. And I believe we ought to be thankful for him having that view of preaching. Paul valued preaching. In Romans chapter 10, Jesus said, How are people going to, or Paul said, How are people going to believe in whom they've never heard? How are they going to hear without somebody preaching? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, Paul said. Paul valued preaching. Jesus valued preaching. And we ought to value preaching too. But our subject under discussion today, he valued preaching as well. One more characteristic. He valued repentance. Repentance is valuable too. It's valuable to Jesus. In Luke chapter 5 and verse 32, Jesus said, I, call, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In Luke chapter 15, <clears throat> Jesus said that there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents rather than 50 righteous people who enter heaven and have no need of repentance. Repentance was valuable to Jesus, was valuable to Paul, should be valuable to us, and it was valuable to the man under discussion today. So who am I? I told you it was in the four Gospels, so Paul's out. But maybe you think, well, Peter? I mean, Peter probably valued all these things, and I'm sure he did, but that's not who I'm talking about. What about John? He valued all these things, but, well, I'm sure he did. But that's not who I'm talking about. What about Jesus? He valued all these things. Well, I'm sure he did, but that's not who I'm talking about. Who am I talking about that valued all these things? Who am I? I'm the rich man that was in torment in Luke chapter 16. Open your Bibles there and let's see why all of these things are connected to this man. If you're not familiar with the story of the rich man and Lazarus, we've obviously got two people here. We've got a rich man and we've got a man named Lazarus. This rich man had a, obviously a lot of things. And he harnessed those things. He kept those things to himself, held them dear. Because there was a guy named Lazarus that would love to even eat the crumbs that fell from this guy's table. He sat at the guy's gate and longed for those things. But the rich man never shared anything with him. Something happened and they both died and found themselves in Hades, the realm of the dead. Hades is made up of two sections, Abraham's bosom, and torment, 
the rich man found himself in torment. Lazarus found himself in Abraham's bosom. And that's what the remainder of the discussion is about. The discourse, the dialogue between this rich man and Abraham. And what did he value? How did he value these things? Well, he was blessed beyond measure, first of all. Look at verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. Purple was reserved for the finest of people, the most wealthy of people. A lot of times it was reserved for those who were of royalty of some kind. Now, I don't know how in the world this rich man got his riches. Maybe he was a royal person of some kind. Maybe he received it as an inheritance from his family. Maybe he did own this huge business that was very successful. I don't know how he received his riches, but I do know this. Everything that he received was a blessing from God. Because in James chapter 1 and verse 17, James tells us that every good and perfect gift comes from above comes from the Father of lights, with whom there is no shadow due to change. There is no variation with God. He gives all good things that we have. And so we can all say that we are blessed beyond measure, just like we did earlier. Lazarus can say, or excuse me, the rich man can say that he was blessed beyond measure. But it was all because of God. Nothing he had done. He valued mercy. How did he value mercy? Well, look at verse 24. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Here we have a description of just how hot torment is. I'm sure he would have loved to have a five-gallon jug of water, but let's not ask for too much. Just one drop from the sink would have sufficed. That's all he wanted. That's all the mercy he asked for. He valued mercy. And you and I must value mercy too. Because without God's mercy, we are in the exact same place as this rich man is. But because we serve a God who is merciful, a God who, if you'll allow me to, to use this terminology, takes His place upon the mercy seat and more pointedly to us, takes His place upon the cross, or takes our place upon the cross, we should probably say we're able to see the value of mercy. I like 2 Corinthians chapter 1. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 7, it's all about comfort. Ten times in that, in those short little, that short little section, we have the word comfort in some, of some kind in that section. But I like what Paul says in verses 3 and 4. He says that God is the God of mercies. Plural. He's not the God of mercy, meaning that it's just one time and done. He's the God of mercies, plural. Meaning when we're always ready to run back to Him, when we're ready to turn our lives around, when we need that mercy and we go to the, one that, the only one that can extend it, we're always going to receive it. It's not a one-and-done thing. It happens over and over again because our God is merciful. He's the God of mercies. I'm sure uh, the rich man would really, could really use some of God's mercy at this moment. Problem was, 
it was too late. He also valued preaching. If you continue in verse 26... Besides all this between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him, to send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. This man wanted Lazarus to go back to earth and to talk to his five brothers about a life of sin and what it leads to. He doesn't want his five brothers to be in the same place of torment where he is. He wants them to be in Abraham's bosom where Lazarus is. How do they change that? By Lazarus going and preaching to them. That's what he thinks. That's, what, that's the type of value that he places upon preaching. That if Lazarus will go preach, then they will turn their lives around and they'll avoid this place of torment. He valued preaching. It talks about warning in this passage. And that's largely what a preacher does. Is they warn people about the sin in their lives and what it leads to. Have you ever wondered why most of the cities in the Old Testament and the ancient world, uh, uh, for that matter, are walled cities? Why is there a wall around these cities? Well, one reason is it keeps enemies out. And it's, it's very difficult to break through the wall or to scale the wall while people are throwing darts and shooting flaming arrows at you. It's difficult. And so it was for protection purposes But also there were several little towers that were placed upon these walls around the city. And on top of those towers were people that we called watchmen. And what they would do is they would look over the territory, look over the landscape, and when they saw somebody coming, approaching the city, they could go and they could warn the authorities of that city that there was somebody coming. That's what God calls Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 3. He calls him a watchman. Why is he called a watchman? Because he's supposed to go and warn the people about their sin so that they can change their behavior and avoid the punishment that's coming. If Ezekiel failed to warn the people and the people were punished, guess what? The blood of those people who were punished would fall upon Ezekiel's head because he failed to do the job of a preacher, if you'll allow me to use that terminology. But if he did go warn the people and they turned away from their sin, then he would enjoy the blessing with them because he did what God asked him to do. That's all, Lazarus, that's all the rich man wanted is Lazarus to go and warn his brothers about a sinful life on earth, which is why it allowed him to do the very last thing on the page, and that's to value repentance. In verses 29 through 31, Abraham said, They've got Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Can we learn anything from the Bible? Do we have to come to church and listen to a preacher to learn anything about the Bible? No. Abraham said, You can read Moses and the prophets, and they can read Moses and the prophets and learn everything that they need to do to change their lives. 
But the rich man said in verse 30, No, Father, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Preaching and Scripture go hand in hand. What do they lead to? When it's received correctly, what does it lead to? It leads to repentance. And what is repentance? Repentance is change of heart that leads to a change of mind, that leads to a change of life. That's what repentance is. And if his five brothers were going to avoid torment, that's what they needed to do. But he still valued it. He was still in the right frame of mind to the point where he could understand the value of repentance. The problem was it was too late for him to repent. His fate had been sealed. And so that's what I want to end this, with this morning. The fact that all of these things were valued by this rich man, but it was too late for him to receive the blessings of any of it because he was already in torment. So here's my question for you today. Do you need to repent? If you're in this worship service today, you're still on earth, you're still alive, and you still have the opportunity to repent of your sin and change the life, and change your life, change the things that need to be changed. If that's where you are today, please don't delay one more second. Respond to the invitation and repent of your sins. It may be that you're not a member of the Lord's church. You haven't been baptized for the remission of your sins and God has not added you to His church. Repentance is part of that plan, part of that salvation process. Maybe you need to repent because you want to be added to the Lord's church. It may be that you're here today and you want to repent because you are a Christian. And there are some things in your life that are good. You're a good person. You don't use foul language, you don't drink, you don't do any of those things. You have good friends, you go to church, you read your Bible occasionally. Those are good things. We may be good people, but being a good person does not put me in a right relationship with God. What's needed is for us to turn our life completely to God, run to Him and run with Him. Do you need to repent and do that this morning? If there's any reason that you feel the need to respond to the invitation, take the opportunity to do that today as we stand and sing. Count all things for Jesus, but loss is thy heart right with God. Is thy heart right?